Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Your young athlete takes a blow to the head. They're dizzy, having headaches, and seem somewhat out of it. It seems like they may have a concussion. You get concerned and you start to wonder if a CAT scan is needed to sort things out. You see your pediatrician and ask about getting his head scanned. Is that the right next step or not? Today on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, I'll take you through the thought process about when and why healthcare professionals should be considering a CT scan for your child following a concussion. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. As a concussion specialist, I see a significant number of young athletes who have had concussions. Some of them have been referred into my practice already having been seen elsewhere, and some come in to see me as I'm the first person to assess them. Those that have been seen elsewhere sometimes come into me with head imaging already like a CT scan. If they haven't, we often will get the question as to whether or not the young athlete we are evaluating needs a CT scan or some other type of imaging. And at times, families don't always think we're being thorough enough because we haven't done a scan just to be sure. There are a lot of assumptions made about what those tests tell us, so let's dive right into this. In general, we think of concussions as a functioning problem in the brain. The way I kind of describe it without getting too deep is that the thought is that the way the cells process energy isn't functioning properly following a concussion, which leads to the symptoms that people experience. There obviously is some sort of structural injury to the brain when a concussion occurs, but with the tests that we have currently that are widely used on patients like CT scans or MRI scans, they typically can't pick up on these things. In the quick way of answering the question of should your child get a CT scan after concussion, the answer would, for the most part, be no. We also don't expect to find a concussion or diagnose a concussion through a CT scan or an MRI scan. We really expect them to be normal following a concussion from sports. So having a normal CT scan does not mean your child has not had a concussion. But let's take one step back. What are some things that may be warning signs for us as medical professionals or you as a parent that would make us concerned that probably they need further evaluation in an ER? The first of these is the worst headache of someone's life or a headache that just continues to worsen to a severe level as time progresses. So this is where time can be our friend a little bit to see how things happen. If your child has a little bit of a headache to start off with, it's not getting worse. The headache criteria probably hasn't been met and that person probably could be observed at home. A second criteria that we usually suggest getting evaluated in the ER is repetitive episodes of throwing up. So I I personally have a what I call the two puke rule. If a child that I've seen that's had a head injury has thrown up more than twice, I think it's worthwhile to get assessed in the ER. A third thing is the inability to use an arm or a leg. So obviously, if they can't use an arm or a leg, that means something is up. And that could be just structural in that person's arm or leg, suggesting they had trauma there as well. Or it could be something related to how it's functioning from the brain. Or if they have really significant weakness in an extremity, like they're having a really hard time using an arm or a leg. A fourth thing would be tingling in the arm or leg following a head injury. Again, we wouldn't expect them to have tingling in an arm or a leg from their brain injury. So if that happens, then we also get concerned about either something more going on in the brain or even possibly something to the spinal cord that could be injured in that situation. 
So a fifth thing is seizure-like activity. Now, seizures are an interesting one because it does scare a lot of people when people have a seizure or what looks like a seizure following a traumatic injury. Interestingly enough, if we really look at the research, seizures themselves haven't been shown to be predictive of whether or not someone has something more going on in their head or their brain than a concussion. So in the big picture of things, they scare people a lot, but they probably are okay. But obviously, if someone has had that seizure-like activity, it is probably worthwhile to get evaluated in the ER. A sixth thing is if they're slurring words, if they can't pronounce words correctly, they're, they're, they're just, they basically sound like they're drunk as an example, or they're not making sense, they're talking complete gibberish, that would be something that we would want someone to be seen in the ER. A seventh thing is not being able to maintain a normal level of consciousness. So if that person is really being difficult to, to stay aroused, that you can't keep them awake, as an example, that is something to get evaluated. Now, I'll take a tangent on that for a little bit here in the sense that when we talk about the awake part of this. So one thing that oftentimes gets recommended to families after they may have left an ER or an urgent care is to wake the child throughout the night. Now, again, we don't typically recommend that any longer, not as a routine, at least for multiple reasons. It's not really a fair assessment to try and wake up a kid in the middle of the night and try and determine if they're okay or not. And we're not seeing kids that are just kind of quietly dying in the middle of the night because of a head injury. Usually something's going to pop up that's going to be a problem from that standpoint. So we usually recommend getting a good night's rest after someone's had a concussion, especially if they've had some sort of evaluation already. Some medical professional has has assessed them, and that could be the athletic trainer. It could be a physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant along those lines. Typically, we're not talking about waking someone up and determining if they're staying awake that way. And we don't want someone to be forced to stay awake after their concussion. But if it is difficult for them, especially in the immediate period of time afterwards, for them to maintain some level of consciousness, that's a concern. An eighth thing is loss of consciousness. Now, there's lots of debate about loss of consciousness is how long of someone being knocked out, so to speak, which is the other analogy for loss of consciousness, how long is that, that it needs to be before someone actually gets assessed. You know, in the medical research that's been done out there, there's been this kind of cutoff of 30 seconds, but I can guarantee you no one is standing on the sidelines or at a game with a stopwatch waiting for someone to get knocked out and then hitting the stopwatch to see how long it takes for that person to regain consciousness. And that can be sometimes difficult sometimes because a kid can go down and they may not move. Now, they may just be stunned and they may not actually have lost consciousness. So that's always a little bit of a difficult one to assess. But certainly if anybody's had a more prolonged period of loss of consciousness, that would definitely be something that we would want to get evaluated. And then the final thing is one pupil being larger than the other. And this is one that I get told all the time in my office is that we checked their pupils and their pupils were okay. One thing to remember is that up to 20% of the population can have one pupil that's larger than the other normally. When we talk about that being a case of looking at someone's pupils, that may be hard to really determine if that person's pupil is a problem or not. Now, what we're looking for if one person's pupil is larger is does it react? When we shine a light in their eye, does it actually constrict? Now, that may be a little bit more difficult if you're out on a bright, sunny day of trying to really determine that. You can't shine a light there and see if their pupils react very well. So that may be something that if we're going to look at that, we're going to look at that in a darker room to really kind of get that better assessment of the pupils. But just to remember that there is some natural variance in pupil size in up to a fifth of people on this planet. Otherwise, if they don't have those things that I just discussed, those nine things that I went through, they're likely watchful waiting and reaching out to your primary care doctor as to when they want to assess your child in the office is really appropriate. 
However, there are times when a CT scan is warranted. And for the most part, a CT scan is what will be ordered during an evaluation in the emergency department or urgent care, or even being evaluated by your primary care doctor. We don't typically get MRIs for lots of reasons, and we'll talk about that briefly. CT scans are quicker, and they're easier to do than an MRI. It's actually, it's much more challenging to schedule an MRI because most MRIs take about 30 to 40 minutes. There's not as many MRI slots that are available for scheduling. So what we're typically looking for when a CT scan is ordered is to make sure that there is nothing more structural going on in the brain. And specifically, the most common things we're looking for are either a subdural or epidural hematoma. And those are just fancier medical words for conditions that basically describe having produced bleeding in an area of the brain. And a CT scan typically does a good job identifying those things. It's nice because it does take 10 minutes or less to do the scan, whereas I mentioned previously, the MRI can take 30 to 40 minutes. And when we're trying to get these things set up, it is oftentimes a lot easier to do those in the ER setting. And certainly, I don't know of any urgent cares that typically have an MRI scanner available at their facilities. So if we have a test that can be done as quickly as a CT scan in 10 minutes or less, many parents may think that they'd rather be on the safe side and just have their physician order the test to be done with it. Is that wrong? Well, CT scans do have a cost to them financially, but more importantly in medicine, we as physicians need to be good stewards of utilizing our resources that we have and not order unnecessary tests. Another consideration is remembering that a CT scan is done with radiation. Protocols have been developed, especially for kids, to minimize that radiation risk, but there is still an exposure there. We all actually have exposure to natural radiation daily from the environment, often from cosmic radiation from outer space. And a single CT scan of the brain can give a radiation dose that's equivalent to many months of that daily exposure to background radiation all in that 10 minutes. And it's very easy for us as physicians to just order a test and for parents to be pleased about that decision for peace of mind, but we do need to weigh those risks and benefits of subjecting the body's tissues to additional radiation, especially if it's unnecessary. Fortunately, there are some great researchers out there who have studied what things that we find through our history taking and through our physical exams in our pediatric and adolescent age patients that will help us as physicians to make the best decision who actually needs a CT scan after a head injury and who doesn't. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk more specifically about that specific research. You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcast Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at whatisthepodcastmatrix.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Healthy Young Athlete podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my growing audience of engaged parents and dedicated coaches of young athletes, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. We are back on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, and we're discussing when does your child need a CT scan following a suspected concussion. Before the break, I mentioned a group of researchers who are known to us in medicine as the PCARN group. Now, PCARN stands for the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, which, as it implies, is a network of pediatric emergency medicine physicians 
we're tackling research questions that are relevant to emergency care. There's also another group from Canada that created what's called the catch rules, which are similar, but they've been found to be a little less accurate than the PCARN rules. So we're going to focus primarily on the PCARN rules with the rest of this podcast. Now, catch actually stands for Canadian Assessment of Tomography, which is part of CT. It's computerized tomography, which is the CAT scan part. The CAT kind of gets thrown in there because it's computer assisted, but we just certain it down to CT scan. So it's Canadian Assessment of Tomography for Childhood Head Injury. So how are these criteria applied? Since we're talking about sports-related concussions or head trauma, we will use the guidelines that PCARN created for children over the age of two, because there's also PCARN guidelines for kids under the age of two with head trauma, and we're not going to talk about those in this podcast. A study that was published in 2009 that was the first PCARN study showing this evaluated over 40,000 patients at multiple medical institutions around the country. The goal of this study was to identify children who were at risk for what was described as a clinically significant traumatic brain injury. We'll discuss that in just a second, what that is. Just for reference here, 7% of the kids with head injuries in this study were sports-related head injuries. So the vast majority were not sports-related, but as you can imagine, there are many, many, many ways that someone can hit their head. What exactly is a clinically significant traumatic brain injury? There are four categories that they included. One would be that there was a death from the traumatic brain injury. A second would be that they needed neurosurgical intervention due to the traumatic brain injury. So that would mean that they had something that required a neurosurgeon to potentially do an operation or a procedure in order to help fix the problem. The third is needing to be intubated, which means putting a breathing tube in them for longer than 24 hours after their traumatic brain injury. And as you can imagine, the likelihood of that for most sports-related concussions is very rare. And then the final one is it led to the patient being hospitalized for two or more nights that was in association with evidence that they had something on their CAT scan related to their traumatic brain injury. So those are the four things that would be constituted by this group that would be clinically significant problems following a traumatic brain injury. What predictors did they use in this study? Well, for those the ages of 2 to 18... The following six things were identified as potential predictors that were studied. The first is being altered mental status. And so they use something that's called the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is a very common scale that we use that assesses various aspects about that individual looking at their level of consciousness. And 15 is the highest score that you can get. So any score less than 15. So if you get one point off on this assessment, that was considered to be altered mental status. And that could be something like also agitation. They're somnolent, which means they're difficult to arouse. They may be doing repetitive questioning, or they may be slow to respond to verbal communications. A second of the six predictors is signs of what's called a basilar skull fracture. And when we look for things that are a basilar skull fracture, this is a particular area of the skull that a break in the bone occurs. And some of the signs that we'll see on somebody, and this off, the first two are oftentimes things that we see a little bit later. One is bruising behind the ears, which is called Battelle sign. And then there's bruising around the eyes, which we describe that as having raccoon eyes. And if you've obviously seen a raccoon, you'll understand why we would describe that based on how they occur. And then other findings that would be more likely to be seen earlier on in the process is they have blood behind the eardrum. So if someone looks inside their ear, they identify blood behind the eardrum, or they find that that person has spinal fluid leaking from the nose or the ear. Those would be signs that someone may have a basal or skull fracture. So that, again, was one of the six potential predictors that they studied. A third being loss of consciousness, and we discussed that before. So, you know, in the big picture of things, when we look at concussions and the research that's been done on concussions, less than 10% of concussions have a loss of consciousness from sports. A fourth is history of vomiting, and we talked about vomiting before in my two-puke rule. A fifth is severe headache, and we've talked about that, the worst headache of someone's life or, or a headache that progressively worsens to the worst headache that they can imagine. 
and then a severe mechanism of injury. So let's talk about what they constituted as a severe mechanism of injury. One of these was being in a motor vehicle accident with that person being ejected from the car, or if it was a rollover motor vehicle accident, or if a passenger in that motor vehicle accident died, those would all be considered a severe form of a motor vehicle accident. A second severe mechanism of injury was a pedestrian or a bicycle rider who is without a helmet that is struck by a motorized vehicle. Another one is a fall of greater than five feet. And then a final one is their head is struck by a high impact object. So those would be what would be considered a severe mechanism of injury. So if none of these items out of those six we discussed were present, the risk of a clinically significant traumatic brain injury was found to be less than 0.05% or less than one in 2000 patients. So very small. Based on the information they got from the study and looking at those six criteria, they were able to then create three groups to help guide our decision-making. The low-risk group was those that had none of those six items that I discussed as potential predictors. And in that situation, no CT scan was needed for those patients. A second group, and this is where sometimes our patients fall here, especially for those things that I talked about earlier would be requirements that we recommend that they go to the ER, is the moderate risk group was anyone who had a loss of consciousness, the history of vomiting, the severe headache, or the severe mechanism of injury. And the risk of a clinically significant traumatic brain injury in that group was 0.8% or 8 per 1,000 patients. And then for the moderate risk group, observation was recommended or and this is the big key here, through shared decision-making with the evaluating healthcare professional and the family as to whether or not there was further need for a CT scan. So it wasn't required, but again, in the big picture of things, they could observe that one, or if the provider and the family decided together that the CT scan was appropriate, then it should be ordered. And sometimes we'll get patients that come into our office after an emergency room visit, and it's told to us, oh, the ER staff did nothing, but they just observed us. And, and the family seems somewhat disappointed in that. And if you fell into this moderate or the low-risk group, that was likely very appropriate as far as what they did as just observing your child. They were doing something and being responsible physicians and practicing responsible medicine. But sometimes when we do that, the impression was that nothing was done at all because they're expecting some sort of intervention. And perhaps a better explanation as to why observation was most appropriate would help reduce that sentiment from families. And it's something that needs to be considered by ER urgent care physicians who are seeing these kids and recommending observation to really communicate that well with families. And then the high-risk group, which had a 4.3% chance to have a clinically significant traumatic brain injury, were those with signs of the basal or skull fracture that we discussed previously, or they were the group that had altered mental status or the Glasgow Coma Scale under 15. And those in the high-risk groups were advised to get a CT scan. But we have this stratification system set up in order to help guide us who needs it. And these PCARD rules have been reevaluated and studied numerous times since their publication in 2009, and they've been found to be extremely helpful, and the results have been replicated in multiple centers around the world. We do have a good tool that we can use in medicine to help determine if your child truly needs a CT scan or not. In fact, actually, several studies have been done on non-pediatric emergency departments and have shown a reduction in CT scan use if they apply these rules for obtaining further imaging, which is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to practice good medicine. And if we find something that really is necessary to do or not necessary to do, we want to follow those guidelines based on what we have for the science that shows whether it's necessary or not. Hopefully, this provides better clarification to the question and shows that there is a little method to behind the madness of medical decision-making as to when your child or adolescent may need a CT scan following concussion. We will continue to cover common questions from our sports medicine clinic like this in future episodes of the Healthy Young Athlete podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
You can listen to our entire podcast library by subscribing to the Healthy Young Athlete podcast on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And you also won't miss when our new episodes are released that way. But you can also follow us on Twitter at HYAPod and on the web at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. We appreciate you leaving us feedback and a five-star review, which helps us get the word out about our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another episode of the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.